Elevates. Trusting all is well, well is all. Welcome back to Elevated Frequencies reading segment. Um, This is Elevated Frequencies where you maintain your visual to be deeply unlocked in order to tap into your Godfidence. I'm your host. um, I'm your host. I'm your friend. I'm your the one that holds you accountable. I'm your guide. I'm your healer. Um, all in all, I'm the host of Elevated Frequencies. My name is Sherry, also known as Shy. Shy Shy, whatever. Um if this is your first time joining our reading segment of Legendborn, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to catch up on the first sets of chapters. We are now at chapter twenty three. We will be reading chapter 23 and 24 today. Um, so again, if you have not joined sooner, don't worry. You have the time to catch up. Even if you want to kind of give yourself a little insight and stick around for chapter 23 and 24. And then at another time, go and read chapter 1 to 22 or just listen to it. That's fine. Um whatever works for you but thank you at least for joining for my listeners who've been tagging along since chapter one i know y'all ready i'm ready um because the the last the last we heard it was a it was a scream going off it's it's yeah trials have now started and it's getting real and uh brie and her little teammate they up next so let's really get into it um Thank you. All right, let's go. Chapter 23. Ainsley and Tucker are the first team that takes to the field holding only their weapons. They dart out before the rest of us, determination clear on their faces, and swords held high. They plan to take out both hellbores first, while unimpeded by mannequins. It's a mistake. There's a reason everyone else's strategy included distraction. The boars are big, heavy, easily confused beasts. They're unable to make quick pivots or turns. But at a straight charge, they are nearly unstoppable. We watch helplessly as the pages go down in under 50, 60 seconds. At the last moment before impact, Ainsley shifts left. The weight of the sword takes her off balance. She trips. She scrambles to her feet, and the boar knocks her to the ground. She chokes out a blood-curdling scream. Am I going to watch her be devoured? Gouged to death? And the boar explodes on top of her. The second boar is a foot from goring Tucker through the middle. Then it explodes mid-chase. The arena freezes. The only sound is Ainsley crying on the ground as shiny particles rain down on her body. Paige Edwards needs medical assistance, Sal says coolly. She and Paige Johnson are disqualified. Then he turns to the rest of us and shouts, The clock is still ticking. Sydney and I explode out of our ditch. And so do the other pages. Celeste and Mina. How much time do we have? Eight minutes, maybe? Eight and a half? I have to focus. I have the heaviest mannequin over my shoulders, tucked against my weapon. My only thought is my agreed-upon goal. 
delivery. Behind me, one of Sydney's daggers whistles through the air. A deep thunk. The boar chasing me hits the ground. The earth shakes. I don't look back. She planned to kill it in one strike, and I have no doubt she did. The mannequin is heavy, but once I get momentum, I almost forget about it. And suddenly, I'm on the other side, heaving it up and over my head like a sack of potatoes. I, w I run wide back to our base, hoping to stay out of the other boar's sight. I know Sydney is saving her other dagger. We can't afford to make her use it on me. Out of the corner of my eye, I see her dancing and weaving away from the monster. No, can't look. One goal, delivery. I skate into our base and hoist the next smallest mannequin, just like we'd planned. Move the heaviest first while I'm fresh. Save the lightest for last when I'm spent. I'm halfway across the field when I trip over Sydney's first dagger. Abandoned in the grass. The mannequin and I go flying. It lands three front feet in front of me with a loud thud that draws our boar's attention. Sydney's quick. She yells, waves, jumps to distract it, but of course... Our remaining boar has a scrap of focus. Its beady eyes finds me, and it charges. I flash through my options. Too far from the other side of the arena. Can't stand my ground. Can't use the mannequin in defense. Can't carry it and outrun the boar. I grab Sydney's knife and shoot to my feet, shouting at her, Get it to safety! I hope she knows what I mean. I sprint back to our brace but arc wide so that the boar after me will curve too and avoid trampling the lifeless mannequin on the ground. Behind me, thundering hooves pound the earth. My thighs and lungs are on fire. Still, I push harder. I can hear its breathing, heavy grunts through a wet mouth, snout. I veer left again to buy myself time. But the change in direction is too sharp, too fast. Something pulls painfully in my left knee. I keep running and fling myself into the ditch. My shoulder clips a pine tree. Bark digs into my arm, but the frustrated squeal behind me lets me know I've made it. I'm safe. When I twist back on my knees and look up, the boar is pawing at the ground and snorting in my direction. I hold my breath and watch as its heavy head begins swinging back and forth, searching. I'm less than six feet away. Why is it? It can't see me. Its eyes are weak. A twig snaps beneath my right foot and its ears flick forward, its snout lifting in a slow searching pattern. But it can hear me. It has a good, good sense of smell. Great. Did Disney do did Sydney do what I asked? Did she grab the mannequin and get it to the other side? I don't bother looking behind me. I know the smallest mannequin is there, still waiting to be rescued. How much time is left? I hear shouting and pound, pounding feet to my left. Celeste and Mina are still in the arena, still working. My boar is pacing now stubbornly waiting for me to come out so it can gore me. I've got to do something. Okay, think. I have Sydney's dagger, 
but I don't have her throwing skills or aim. I have my cudgel still strapped to my back, but at this angle, I don't have enough power for more than a hard poke to the chin. I look around to my side, then up. I shove Sydney's dagger handle in my mouth and start climbing the oak tree beside me before I decide whether it's a good idea or not. All I know is that I know trees. I've climbed them since I was a kid. Trees are good. I step up onto the large burl overgrows on either side of the oak. Gripping their bobo shapes as well as I can with sneakers and wrap my hands around to find the next burl. Hoist myself up. The boar's head lifts to follow me. But I'm gambling that it can't see me very well and just knows that I'm moving. The limbs are too far up to do me any good. But I stop about 10 feet up with one arm in a death grip around the trunk. Precariously balanced on a burrow just wider than my shoe. The boar has backed up now, just a few feet from the tree line. It's hard work getting the kujo and its leather strap off with one hand, but I manage it quickly and hold the still buckled weapon away from me and the tree, waving it a bit to get the boar's attention. It stops moving. Its beady eyes follow the motion eagerly. This is a bad idea. One, two, three! I toss the Kujo off to my right and grab the dagger with my free hand while the creature does just what I hoped. It shifts its bolt toward the, toward the falling Kujo away from me. Its head dips down to inspect the staff, and I shove off from the tree, launching myself forward onto its back, dagger pointing down. Gravity drives the sharp blade into the creature's shining neck, not me, but the blow works just the same. The animal squeals and bucks, tossing me in the air like a rag doll. I hit the ground with a jarring thud and curl into a ball, ready for the heavy stomp of the hooves, but it never comes. The head pops up just in time to see the boar. My knife still lodged deep, in, deep inside, crumbled to the ground. Run! Sydney screams. She's going for the mannequin. I scramble to my feet and sprint to the other side of the arena. We both have to get there in time. Sydney slides down the ditch right behind me, mannequin over her shoulder, just as the whistle goes off. We're the only team from our round to pass. Sometime during my flying squirrel impersonation, Celeste and Mina let two of their mannequins get gored. When we emerge from our side to the, of the arena, the legend-born cheer from their observation spots in the woods. I feel dazed, but exhilarated. Sydney doesn't smile at me. Exactly. But she nods in my direction before she walks off to join Vaughn and Blake and the other four pages who have passed. They stand together, congratulating one another. The four who didn't are in varying levels of shock and devastation. Mina's wiping tears from her face while Ansley rubs her back in slow circles. Celeste and Tucker are in a heated argument. From the snippets I hear, they both blame their partners for their eliminations. I stand between them, unsure where I really fit in 
When I glance his way, Cell is looking up the hill where the legendborn have begun stomping their way through the trees to meet us. His brows are knitted together in concentration, his head cocked to the side as if listening for something. Nick! Nick! When Victoria shouts, Cell is already moving toward the sound. He flashes by me so quickly that I hear the wind crack around his body before he disappears into the tree line in a, in a shadowy blur. We're all running to follow. The trees stand so thick up the slanted hill, it's hard to see what's happening. But we can hear it. Something is tumbling through the trees like an enormous bowling ball, cracking trunks in half like giant pins. That something is coming closer, the sounds are getting louder, and when it bursts through a pair of pine trees sending bark and splinters in every direction and spills out onto the arena floor, stop it, it stopped us all short. It's a massive, full-corp serpent. It's scaled body as big and round as a tractor tire. It pulls half of its body up off the ground and until it towers 20 feet above us. Blood red eyes the size of my fists blazing down on us. The glowing creature opens its jaws to release a shrill, nightmarish hiss that scrapes against my eardrums. A hell snake, my mind supplies, with a body wrapped tight in its glowing tail. Nick! I scream for him, but it's no use. It only takes a second to see that he's enveloped, head to toe, in a coil of muscle. Only the pale hair at the top of his hair, head visible in the hell snake's grip. The awakened legendborn gather aether as they run, forming glowing swords and daggers. I catch a glimpse of Felicity and Russ, casting armor on themselves as they dash forward. But the quick shadow shape of Selwyn Kane speeds out of the trees and leaps onto the snake before anyone else has reached it. While the serpent ripes, Sel scrabbles up its body, using its scales as handholds. He mounts its head as the creature thrashes back and forth, its forked tongue flicking out like glowing whip. Sel had no time to form a weapon, but his entire body is wrapped in thin, swirling clouds of silver-blue aether. He pulls back with a roar and thrusts both of his arms on into the snake's eyes, burying them into the sockets up to his elbow. The creature screams loud enough to shatter glass. Its big body spasms so hard anyone else would have been thrown. But Sal holds tight and only pushes his arms in further. Vicious fluid erupts in his face. After a final shudder, the hell snake goes stiff and falls forward, releasing a gasping nick right as its head hits the ground. Whoo, y'all. I ain't gonna hold you, Nick. This is the second time where he's he's almost had like a near-death experience, y'all. I, I don't understand what's going on here. We gotta get it together, Nick. That is the end of chapter 23.
Um, if you do need to take a break, go use the bathroom, take me along with you. I don't know. I don't want to know that information, though. Um, <laughs> you want to go get a snack? You got to refill your water bottle. Got to get some more juice. Got to get some more wine. Whatever it is that you please, now is the time. You can go ahead and just take a moment. And we're going to continue on to reading chapter 24. Time to wind it down, my love, and slow it down, my love. No need to rush yourself, it's gonna get done. All right, let's go ahead and read chapter 24. And let's do it. I stand in front of Nick's door for what feels like forever, but it's probably only a few uncertain minutes. I don't know why I'm hesitating. He could just be sleeping. He should just be sleeping. And if that's the case, I'll just go home and sleep too. See him in the morning. No, I know why I'm hesitating. It's because it's late. The lodge is quiet. And he might not be sleeping. And being alone with him has started to feel intense. I gaze hopefully down the hall as if someone might appear and rescue me from the Schrodinger's cat of conscious boys scenario I find myself in, but it's empty and unhelpful. The only signs of life on the floor are the scattered few glowing lamps on some of the teak console tables between residence doors. On the other side of this door, Nick is recovering from yet another attack that could have killed him. That's what I should focus on. That's what I need to focus on. I take a slow, deep breath and open his door, slipping inside and easing it closed behind me. Nick is asleep on top of the comforter in loose clothing, flannel pants, a soft t-shirt, His arms lie straight down at his sides. The fine strands of his hair are partly matted on one side, partly strewn across the pillow, like he's just been blasted by a gust of wind. He's flushed, too. Each of his cheeks bears a slash of red. I walk closer. My arms clutch tight across my middle. He's recovered from the broken ribs that William treated. His steady breaths say out of danger, and his lungs are fine. But the slight pull at the corners of his eyes say he could still be in pain. Did William give him something to make him sleep? I hope so. I start to turn to let him rest but jump when Nick whispers behind me. Who's creepy now? I turn back to the bed, where Nick has started to push himself up his pillow. 
He winces, but waves me off when I move to help him. I'm okay. Just stiff. I look him over with a suspicious eye. If I stay and talk to you, will William yell at me? Nick laughs, but the sound is cut short when his breath catches in pain. <laughs> William will yell at both of us, probably. He rubs a hand over his chest and swallows thickly. Watching the motion sends my mind flying back to the arena. I shift my weight from one foot to the other. I heard Sel says to say to the others that he thinks this attack was planned too. Not a coincidence. That the Shadowborn sent a creature that would be able to subdue you quickly and take you away. His eyes go distant as he nods. My father said the same thing in the infirmary. The regents have called a meeting. My dad is going to take another day to recover. Then fly up to the northern chapter to speak with them and the other Vicoras. I watch him pick at the gold anchors embroidered on the comforter. Almost like he needs to do something to keep his hands busy. Seal's in charge while he's gone, William said. Unfortunately, I respond. After Nick had been recovered alive but injured, Sal took him straight to the lodge. The long walk back through the, wooded, through the woods had given me a lot of time to think about my mission here and the danger it was putting both me and Nick in. With every step, guilt dropped into my body, one heavy brick at a time. Cell may be terrifying and cruel, but he's the only reason the Shadowborn's plan to kidnap Nick fell tonight. Cell's role as King's Mage is more critical than ever right now, and his suspicions of me are taking his attention from his job. It's worse, too. Because those suspicions are unfounded. He's wasting energy on me when after tonight, there's no doubt that Nick's life is in danger. The Order is an army. The Legendborn are its soldiers. Could I really keep going in the tournament and become Williams or Pete's or even Nick's squire if my only intention is to gain the title so that I can find out what happened to my mother? This afternoon, with Patricia... Finding the truth had felt like the most important thing in the world. Important enough to lie to my father, lie to Alice, and lie to everyone at the lodge every time I showed my face. My, my mission still feels important and necessary because how can I rest knowing that someone may have taken my mother away from me? That it might not have been an accident at all. But whether or not Camlin arrives and whether or not someone in the order killed my mother, Nick needs a real squire, not a fraud. For the first time, I wonder if maybe Cell's right and I am born of shadows. Or maybe those shadows aren't who I am, but I keep finding my way to them anyway. Nick huffs. <laughs> Earth to breathe. You're just standing there zoning out. It's making me anxious. He pats his bed and his eyes hold a hint of their old mirth. You can sit down, you know. I won't bite. I stare at him then. Really stare at him. 
Someone I care about is alive but hurt. Someone I like very much is right here in front of me, asking me to sit with him. It dawns on me that if I ignore that or forget how important that is, then I truly will make the shadows my home. I take a deep breath and step forward, pulling off my shoes and climbing onto his bed. And just like that, the nearness of Nick pulls all of my focus. His warmth, the bright scent of William's aether mingling with the detergent smell of fresh clothes, his half-lidded eyes that follow me as I move toward him and watch me as I get settled. It's too much all of a sudden, and my entire body knows it. I lean back a tiny fraction. Of course, Nick notices. He presses his lips closed to fight a grin, and the expression somehow makes his already handsome face more endearing, more inviting. You nervous, B? No, I say and raise my chin a fraction to feel and appear convincing. I'm not sure it works because he makes a soft, curious sound. Do I make you nervous? He tilts his head to the side in query, but it causes his matted hair to flare up comically. I cringe and laugh. (laughs) You look like a rooster. It takes everything in me not to stretch up and press it down. A rooster? He tilts his head the other way, sending his hair flopping again. I blow out a laugh, just like he wants me to, and he smiles. I can't help it. I lean forward on my knees and smooth his hair down. Once the soft strand lays flat, I notice how carefully Nick watches me, how still he's gone. His eyes are slate blue with dashes of gray. His lashes fine strokes of paint against his skin. I wonder if he's holding his breath too. I start to pull back, but he catches my wrist with one hand and passes his thumb, caloused and warm, over the inside of my palm. The motion tingles and tickles until his thumb presses down and sends an arrow of heat from my hand to my toes. My heart beats so rapidly, I'm sure he must see it, feel it through my palm. Thank you. For what, I ask. This close, Nick's laundry and cedar scent is rich enough to make me dizzy. There are other smells that I pull in with a silent breath. Green grass on a warm summer day. The slight bite of metal. His eyes travel an unhurried route over my face, from my brows to my nose. They flicker to my mouth and back to my eyes. And just like that, my breath is gone again. For still being here, he says, his expression a mixture of wonder and gratitude. Even after the hellhound and the yukul. And Felicity being called. And now a Sarfufrin. I never thought we'd be this close to Kimlin. But I'm glad you're here with me.
His eyes lower. He shakes his head. When we first met, some part of me trusted you. I don't know why. I just did. Despite my guilt, I think of how in so many moments since I've met him, my own trust had risen inside to meet his, sure and steady. Call and response. Maybe Nick's thinking of that too because he caresses my palm once more and takes a ragged breath. How about now? His whispers, his voice rough. Now, I breathe. Something heady and dark pulls in Nick's eyes. Does this make you nervous? The last boy I kissed was Michael Gustin in ninth grade in the corner of the school dance. I remember being terrified and after the too wet, too sloppy ick of it, disappointed. But that was ninth grade and Michael. This is now and this is Nick. I don't feel nervous. I feel desire batting against my ribs like a caged bird. I feel hesitation. I feel overwhelmed. Then I feel mortification when I realize that Nick, with his sharp, perceptive eyes, has seen it all. He smiles, small and secret, and brings his free hand up to cradle my jaw, sweeping his thumb over it. His eyes follow the movement thoughtfully before they rise to claim my gaze again. He squeezes my wrist, then lets me go. I lurch backward on my knees, my cheeks heated, the ghost of his hands on my skin. I'm grateful that he's busy adjusting his pillows and not looking at me. I have a feeling he's doing it on purpose, giving me a moment to collect myself. Once he finishes, he settles back against the headboard and folds his hands on his lap. Will you sit with me? He asks pleasantly. And just like that, the air between us feels lighter, easier, like nothing unusual had happened at all. I'm impressed. Despite my still racing heartbeat, how does he do it? How does this boy navigate my emotions like a seasoned sailor, finding the clear skies and bringing them closer, when all I seem to be able to do is hold fast to the storms? He waits patiently for me to decide. His eyes soft and open. Finally, I nod and crawl up to the headboard, making myself comfortable in the space beside him. We sit like that for a long time until our breaths rise and fall as one. I must have dozed off because I jump up when I hear the lodge's front door slam downstairs. The room is black. For a moment, I forget where I am. Nick presses a hand to my knee and says in a groggy voice, If it's bad, they'll come find us. The digital clock above his door says it's close to 1 a.m. I should go. If you leave now, Cell will know you're still here and yell at both of us. He says reasonably, stay. I can't really argue with that. Plus, now that the adrenaline has fully left my body, 
I'm beyond exhausted. Still, I pull out my phone and text Alice to let her know where I am and that I'm okay before before putting my phone on silent. When the screen goes black, we sit in the darkness listening to the voices downstairs until the house becomes quiet again. I I start to wonder if I should find some pajamas and sneak into one of the spare rooms to go to bed for real. I reach up to my hair and tug on my bun. I'd hate to sleep without my satin pillowcase. Maybe Felicity has a scarf? Before I can slip off the bed, Nick starts to speak, his voice low and disembodied in the pitch black room. Most Siam parents can't wait until their child is old enough to begin training. I know my dad couldn't. My mother, though, when I look back, it was obvious that she was terrified. You don't have to talk about this now if you don't want to. I do. I do want to. I reach for his hand in the darkness and he squeezes my palm. My mother was raised in a Vassal family and she paged right away but never tried for a squire tile. Marrying a scion of Arthur was the next best thing her parents figured. My dad was never called but scions of Arthur still hold a lot of power. When I was growing up, she and my dad fought a lot about my future, about my dad's training regimen. I couldn't go to regular school. He homeschooled me, so he had more control over my studies. I was eight when dad started bringing over leagues around to train me. He told them not to go easy because, just because I was a kid. Because really I wasn't a kid. I was their king. And they didn't. Go easy, that is. They. Nick pauses and I can hear him swallow once. Twice. I'm scared that he's crying and I don't know what to do. I press my shoulder into his and hope I can send my warmth and strength over to him. When he starts again, his voice is thick with memory. It's not the broken bones or the bruises, the black eyes or the concussions that keep me up at night. Those were healed by the sign of Gawain. It's the look in my mother's eyes when I'd come inside, like the sight of me was carving holes into her heart. They'd fight the most those days. He takes a deep breath in the darkness. I take one with him because I want him to know I'm here. One night, she woke me up and told me to grab my things that we were leaving. She'd had enough of watching her son get beaten. We made it about a mile out of town before these black cars surrounded us. Dad comes out of one of them and he's frightened and angry. 
more upset than I'd ever seen him. I think he was scared we'd both been kidnapped by the Shadowborn, and that's why he called the reasons for help. He'd never imagined his own wife would take his son from him. A Merlin. I'd never met took my mother away. Without letting either of us say goodbye. His voice has gone cold with rage, quiet with sorrow. Dad broke down in tears when they drove off because he knew she'd be punished. I think he tried to stop it, but the region's word is final. The training stopped for a while. He started me at a private school. Stopped talking about my rank. Our bloodline. The next... The next time I saw her was a few weeks ago, later at a park near our neighborhood. My dad and I were getting ice cream. Mom walked by, and I ran up to her and gave her a hug. Told her I was glad she was back. But she wasn't back. She smiled, but she held me at arm's length and asked who I was. I choke on my next breath, tears burn at the edges of my eyes. I spent years researching Merlin's mesmers, trying to figure out how to break what they've done. Extracting a mother's child from her psyche is mesmer work only a master Merlin could do. When we met and you told me you'd broken Cell's mesmer, I thought maybe I'd missed something. His voice trails off into a heavy sigh. That's what I seen in his eyes the first night at the lodge. Hope. I'm sorry. I murmur. He squeezes my thigh. Not your fault. He inhales sharply, returning to the memory. Anyway, after we ran into her, dad moved us out of town within the week. To protect me, I think. Not long after that, Cell came to live with us, and another Merlin brought us here to perform the King's Mage Oath. Cell's a little kid, pledging his life to protect me, and all I could think was how much I hated the Merlins for being monsters and how I didn't want this strange boy in our house. I wanted my mother. I blamed my dad for calling the regents that night, but in the end, it was Arthur who drove my parents apart, and I'm, I'm so angry with him, Bree, angry with the sixth century ghost. <laughs> I was, I was so, so furious of all of it that I thought if I stopped training every day, stopped doing everything my dad wanted me to do, and stopped hanging around everyone here, William, Witty, Saw. Everyone that I could make it so Arthur wouldn't even want to call me. I left this world, the people, the politics, the rituals, so that maybe he'd think I was unworthy and leave me alone. And now that it might be real, <laughs> I've pushed it all away for so long that sometimes I'm not sure I'd even be able to hear Arthur if he did call. 
I wrap my arms around his chest and squeeze until he drops his cheek onto my head and squeezes back. I don't mention Cell saying the same thing when he was Aether drunk about Nick not being able to hear Arthur's call. I hate that Cell, in his own fit of fury, might have been right. I wake up to the sound of Nick showering in the room's bathroom. My phone says it's 7.30, early enough that I can still make my first class. I sit up, hand smoothing down my unwrapped, slept on curls and apology, and notice a small basket of toiletries on the nightstand behind me. Soap, a washcloth, a comb I'll never be able to use, and a small toothbrush and tiny tube of toothpaste. I can hear I can already hear Alice's squeal of delight when I tell her about Nick's efforts. I may not be able to tell my best friend everything, but I can at least tell her about sleeping in Nick's bed and waking up to a literal gift basket. I grab the toiletries and head downstairs to one of the hall bathrooms, hoping against hope that no one saw me emerge from Nick's bedroom. Ten minutes later, Nick finds me and insists on walking me back to my dorm. Dew and fog have settled over the grounds of the lodge overnight, and the quiet of the morning falls thick and heavy around us. Nick shakes his head, eyebrows drawn tight as soon as we step away from the building and toward the tree-lined gravel road and trail that leads back to campus. What? Every time I come here, people look at me like I, I know what the hell I'm doing. I cross my arms as we walk, and a memory comes to me. My mom used to say, fake it till you make it. Maybe that's what you've got to do. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> he chuckles, and the warmth of it fills my chest. Thanks, partner. Oh, I'm not your partner. I jerk a thumb over my shoulder, back toward the lodge. I think Vaughn wants that gig. Ugh, that dude. He keeps asking me to spar. It's all very bro-y. Is that a word? I giggle. Imagining Vaughn, the asshole chasing Nick down with sparring swords, begging him to practice. I really don't want him as my squire. Nick's eyes widen, hopefully. Any more thoughts about... I hold my hands up. As we all saw last night, I don't have a clue how to hold a sword or a bow and arrow or anything. I'd be horrible. We train you, Nick grins. I've seen you move. You'd be incredible. Oh, really? I cross my arms, narrowing my eyes. Yeah, really. (laughs) Maybe I like watching you move. I open my mouth, but no actual words emerge, so I just shake my head and turn away. He stops in the road, catching my wrists, and tugs until I have to angle toward him. Don't do that, he chides. Do what? Shadows play across his face as he draws me nearer. Like last night in his room, he presses his thumb into my palm, and just that bit of pressure ignites my insides, sets my heart racing. That thing you just did, that thing you do, he says. 
His eyes filled with humor and a shadow of hurt. Tell yourself I'm teasing. It's okay to be nervous. But please don't dismiss the idea that I like you, B. I make a strangled sort of indignant sound. I'm not nervous. I'm just... He tilts his head. Just what? I blink in shock because he's really, really expecting an answer, isn't he? I'm... I'm a lot of things. He hums in amused agreement, his lips tight in a suppressed smile. You are. I agree. And... And I'm not used to feeling this way. What way? I feel heat rise in my cheeks and then look away just as Nick flashes a soft, knowing grin. He trouts his fingers up my forearms to my inner elbows, making me shiver. His right hand skims past my elbow to my bicep, over my shoulder to rest on my collarbone. His thumb swiping along my jaw. I had a thought about what I said last night. His voice is quiet, almost meditative, as he watches his thumb on my cheek. About being Arthur Cyan and how, on some level, I never thought I'd really, I'd have to really deal with it, you know? Not really. My dad didn't. Granddad didn't. A dormant Cyan has clout, but no real say in the order. I never thought about how his powers might feel and what I might do with them until his eyes flick to mine. My breath hitches. Until. Until the yuko took you. Oh, sure. I joke, my voice trembling only slightly. His face is so close, I can smell the shampoo he used this morning. See the fine lashes against his cheek. I'm scared to want him, but I want him anyway. My words, my next words come out breathy and faint. Damsel in distress activates your suit, your hero mode. The passion in his voice, the breathless force of it, is enough to make me shiver. You're not a damsel to me, Bree. You're a warrior. You're strong, you're beautiful, and you're brilliant and brave. He presses his forehead against mine. His eyes squeeze shut and takes a slow, ragged breath. And I'd really like to kiss you. Oh! <laughs> I squeak and immediately wish I'd thought of something more to say. Anything more. He chuckles his clean, minty breath already intimate against my mouth. Oh, no? Or, oh, yes. He pulls back to meet my eyes, and there is affection and something more flicking in their heated depths. It's the something more that sends an arc of electricity through my body. The second, oh, he tilts his, he tilts my chin and presses his mouth against mine. Warm and soft. I've read books, watched movies, whispered secret wishes to Alice in the darkness of bunk bed sleepovers. I expect this kiss to feel an awkward sort of good. 
I don't expect each gentle brush of Nick's lips to shift, grow ins- insistent, and set me on fire. The distant sounds of early morning birds fade away when Nick's fingers smooth up the column of my, column of my throat, angling my face so that our mouths connect more fully. My fingers clutch at his, at his t-shirt, pulling closer, until I am all feeling and no thought. My heart pounding with his, the heat of his chest against mine, and the strength of his thigh pressing into my own. Someone gasps for air, then we find each other again. I make a sound in the back of my throat that should be embarrassing, but Nick consumes it with a low hum against my mouth, drawing me forward until we're flush. In that instant, I feel the two sides of our familiar dance, the call and response of trust and loyalty intermingling until they become a melody, a beautiful truth that circles in the wind, swirling against my mind, growing louder until everyone, everyone must hear it too. I don't know what our kiss is becoming. Just as his lips ghost over my jaw, just as his fingers feather over my sternum, We hear someone's feet crunching down the gravel road behind us. Nick, that you? Russ. I instinctively freeze, but Nick lifts his head, a frustrated groan rising from his chest. Another voice nearby. Who's that? Oh God, Evan too. Whoa! At some point, we'd rotate it so that my back is toward the way we'd come, and Nick is facing Russ and Evan's disembodied voices. Thank the Lord, too, because I can duck my face into Nick's shoulder and catch my breath instead of die of mortification in front of frat boy Evan Cooper. Evan crows, okay, y'all shit, get it? (laughs) He's wheezing with laughter. Is this a good morning kiss or a good night kiss? Nick Russ calls, the sound of a grin all over his face. Are we coming or going? Kind of busy right now, guys. I can't help but feel a little thrill at the still underneath Nick's hoarse voice. Oh, we can see that. Russ laughs at his own joke while Evan says, Sorry to interrupt, my league. Please proceed with thy gentle tonguing. They both laugh a long time at that, and even I crack a grin into the soft fabric of Nick's shirt. They walk around us, whooping and cheering the entire way down the gravel road toward campus. As soon as they get out of earshot, Nick sighs, pulling me tighter in the circle of his arms. You okay? I nod into his chest and press my ear to it. We stand there in comfortable silence. After a few moments... Both our hearts slow from a rapid gallop to a steady thump. My lips still tingle, and the fine hairs on my arms are alert with want. But I sigh into it all rather than act on it. For the first time in a long time, I let myself enjoy a moment of warmth and safety without wondering if it's real.
Ooh, child. That is the end of chapter 24. So, they finally did it, y'all. Nick and Bree finally kissed. And I know we all been kind of waiting for that to happen. Because that energy was real between them. But they was not trying to move on nothing. But they moved on it, y'all. I, I wish them nothing but the best moving forward. And I'm excited to see what's more to come. I hope you guys enjoyed chapter 23 and 24 tonight. Next week, we will be on chapter 25 and 26. I enjoy reading to you guys, and I hope you enjoy the reading as much as I enjoy doing the service. Um, if you have any book suggestions or anything of that sort, I am more than open to receive that. But other than that, I'll see you guys next week. Stay true. Stay you. And let's just keep our eyes and ears ready for chapter 25 and 26. Namaste.